Good morning. Merry Christmas to you. Would you open your Bibles, please, to Isaiah, the ninth chapter? <clears throat> I think it's about poor, page 487, if you're using one of our Bibles. And we'll s- start in Isaiah 9 and work our way uh, through the book a little bit. So you might turn a few pages this morning, but that's okay. While you're doing that, um, I'll tell you about a book I'm reading. Actually, it's an audio book. My wife would say, you're not reading it, you're listening to it. Uh, but I think it counts, and I drive safer. I drive more slowly. Um, I'm reading a book. Uh, it's a historical fiction on the Battle of Agincourt, which is a very, very famous uh, battle between the English and the French in the, <clears throat> in the late medieval period under the reign of Henry V, King of England. If you uh, have ever read or seen Henry V, uh, Shakespeare's play, the climax of that play is the Battle of Agincourt on St. Crispin's Day. It's that battle. And I'm reading a, a story that backs all the way up to the inception of the campaign that uh, caused the English to invade Europe against the French so that Henry V could claim his right to the throne. So was his claim. Uh, but something interesting, it was a, it's turned out to be an interesting insight into something that I've seen before but never quite noticed, which is whenever, uh, it's not uncommon that when a people are preparing to go to war, uh, that experience on the front end is very bright and grand and full of pomp and circumstance to go to war. There's banners streaming and pennants flying and colors and the armor is burnished bronze and bright in the gleaming sun and the sky is clear and swans fly and God is on your side. Literally, swans did fly for this. Uh, Henry V's animal was a swan and as they were setting to cross the channel, it was seen as an omen for them that swans took flight in front of his ship, the Trinity. I mean, God is on his side. Everybody's convinced they're not going to die. And they're going to come home with splendor and wealth and plunder. That's how wars start. Everybody has a parade. Uh, Every army has their dress uniform. And then as the history unfolds and as the story is told the granular nature of reality sets in. The idea of war becomes war, and that is a much less attractive thing. The English army was besought by the plague, so they were fighting while sick with the plague. They were starving because... They had overstayed the season of war and the French had put up a much stronger defense than they had ever imagined possible. And by the time of the Battle of Agincourt, they are trying to escape the continent um, while being hunted down by an army many, many times their size. And they get caught on the way to Calais at Agincourt. 
And the ships and the splendor and the ceremony in the tents have been replaced with hunger and rust and mud and rain and filth and fear and fury. And these noble prayers that God is on their side have turned into prayers that God would save their soul before death. And the fact that they were convinced they weren't going to die has turned into a conviction that they'll take as many others down with them before they go to hell. It's just become very real. And I think that is uh, not uncommon in um, many wars, but it's not entirely uncommon in life that we will, on the front end of something very, very important, ceremonialize it in a special way that's far more grand than its reality is on a day-to-day basis. A marriage is this way, right? The wedding is splendid. I mean, flowers and dresses and fancy food, things. The marriage is, I'm not saying is worse, it's less splendid. It's real. It's granular. It is stripped away. There's rusts and mud and fear. There, it's, it's real. A child can be this way. You find out, you know, you find out, well, I, I didn't hear. I, I don't know what I missed, but I think the joke is on me. But to conceive a child is like this. You know, obviously, conceiving a child's great. Um, I'm all for that. And you can say that. God made it. And then there's the splendor and the joy of, of you know, the, the early year moments of pregnancy where, you know, everybody's excited. Grandmas are jumping up and down. Um, you get to paint bedrooms and buy bassinets and baby showers and you get to read what to expect when you're expecting and my baby day by day and you get to celebrate when your child's the size of a kumquat and all of that is, you know, you're so excited, you save little thing that came up blue, you just, all of that happens and it's heading towards labor, which is real and real. And after that, you have a child. Nobody shows up for banners and pendants then. Like, you got to, for a long, long, long time, you have this child. Nobody's celebrating you then. Where do they go? That, it's just, this, mo- this, this motion, migration from c- ceremonializing the greatness of the, of the idea. I mean, so marriage is great. A child is a life and is wonderful, right? Claiming your rightful throne is great. It's worthy of the momentous ceremony. The gaining of it is hard. And I think today, I want to show in you in Isaiah how the anticipation of the Christ in Isaiah, the anticipation of his advent, of his coming, kind of follows this arc. When you read the prophecies about 
the coming Christ, you are, uh, we're, we're met initially by ceremony, and we are, uh, as we migrate through the prophecies of Isaiah, we eventually find the battlefield of Agincourt, the reality of what Jesus has to do for us. Let me show you. Isaiah 9. This was two weeks ago we read this. I'm going to just say it to you again. It's this great ceremonial birth announcement. Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it in justice with righteousness from this time forth to forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. I mean, that is full of brass, joy to the world, trumpet-sounding glory. There might be a hint of the ironic humility in the fact that it's coming through a child, but there's no, there's no cloudy day in this. This is brilliant. The Lord, and notice the likeness of the one coming with God. I mean, the godness of this child is is right in front of us. The titles conferred to him, everlasting, you know, mighty God, everlasting father, are given to this child. The throne is given to him. The sovereign power is given to him. This is glorious. And then you set sail. And you get to Isaiah 42. Now, I skipped a lot, but by design, Isaiah 42, there are moments in the book of Isaiah, and we read this last week, there are moments in the book of Isaiah where um, the normal trend of prophecy kind of pauses and God speaks with a slightly different voice with attention on the coming Messiah. And 42 is one of these. In fact, 42 is the first of four what are called servant songs. They're songs in Isaiah anticipating the Christ. This is the first of them. I want you to hear what sounds similar and what sounds a little different after we've kind of crossed the channel here. Behold my servant whom I'm uphold. That's 42. My servant whom I'm uphold. That's different. I thought he was a king. Servant. Still, though, the mood is still bright. My chosen in whom my soul delights. You feel the brightness? I've put my spirit upon him, and he'll bring forth justice to the nations. It says, a bruised reed he won't break. A faintly burning wick he won't quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice, is what it says. There's this sense, there's still this brightness, this confidence, this success, this impending victory of the coming one. Though, oddly, the coming one's not referred to as a king here, it's referred to as a servant. You kind of move from the godness of the coming one, the Messiah, the, the Christ, to the otherness. There's a distinction now. There's the God and his servant.
And then you get to the fourth verse. And nobody's going to have a problem with the first half of the fourth verse. He will not grow faint or be discouraged. Of course, because he's mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But then there's this little word, till. He has established justice in the earth. We read this last week. We blew right by it because it was running out of time. (laughs) But it's there, the little word till. It's like a, a door that opens into kind of a dark space. What does it mean that he won't grow faint or be discouraged or bruised is another way of reading that word. He won't grow faint or be bruised until, until or until, same idea, till he has established. The suggestion is he will eventually grow faint. Is it not? The suggestion is he will eventually be discouraged or bruised. Now, you may say, well, I don't know, that's pretty. You know, if you were the wise men, that's kind of the motif we've had, right? If the wise men were reading Isaiah, would they get up and they go? Would it could it put with a star? Would that drive them to Jerusalem? And if in Isaiah 9, you have all of this description. They know he's a king and he's a king of righteousness coming through the birth. He's in the line of David. He's going to be a child. You have all of that that's present there. When you get to 42, it's a little less clear. He's a servant, he's a glorious servant, and maybe, you're, maybe I'm making a lot over a little word, till. I think it's tipping the hand a little bit. I want to take you to the next servant song in Scripture. It's Isaiah 49. Now, Uh, I want to say it's just a note because we pass a lot of pages. I'm not cherry picking. It's not my heart to cherry pick out of Isaiah. Uh, I'm trying to find the best way to offer you Isaiah in four weeks with God's advent in mind. So forgive me there. I I, I don't know how to do it better. Um, you're also going to read things and you're going to say, wow, he seems so confident that this servant is Jesus. It seems like the servant could be someone else. And if you have that feeling in your belly, it's understandable. It requires a little more work than we can do to be conclusive about it. Uh, though I, f- I feel confident, as do many in the church, that this is of Christ. This is one of the four servant songs for the Lord. But if you feel that way, I would just say, ride along with me, walk beside me. Uh, and I, but I want to honor that expression, if you have it. Um, <clears throat> it's been a long week in Isaiah. Let me read this to you. Four verses out of this uh, song to the servant. Listen to me, this is 49, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. 
I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. I want to walk just verse by verse through this a little bit. Verse 1 tells us to whom this song is directed. To the coastlands, to the people from afar. The song is being sung or the verses are being addressed not to Israel, but to the nations around, around other nations. The people that are not Israel. The world. The Gentiles. That's, that's a... That's the meaning of that first part. The second part is this idea of being called from the womb. Now, in a lot of the prophecy of, uh, about Christ, it's not uncommon to find birth language, and I find that ironic at the very least, symbolic, possibly. I think the real intent here, rather than kind of trying to presage the virgin birth, is probably more to point to God's foreknowledge and forepurpose in this servant. It's not as though God's looking around the earth and saying, well, there's somebody I'll use him. The Lord is saying, or the servant is saying of the Lord, I was designated for this purpose before I was born. I was named for this purpose while in the womb. That this is in the grand plan of God. That's, I think, the intent of that second half of first verse. Verse 2 points to this. He says, out of the mouth, there's this sword. That's consistent with the images of Christ we've found elsewhere. Gospel of John begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This idea of the, of the servant wielding the Word of God. Revelation 1, in the image of Christ, as Christ is described, John is having a vision, and in the vision, Christ is coming. And in all of his glory and splendor and the stars in his hand, John says in one sixteen, and out of his mouth came a double-edged sword. The idea here is, is that God, God's truth is what wields power in this world. And this servant is bringing it. This servant is going to fight and wage war with the words of truth. Then there's this description of the arrow. He says, I'm an arrow of the Lord. And the idea here is, I do... What, I do the will of the Father. I am an instrument of the Lord. I am truly his servant. The Lord draws me out and pulls me back and releases me on the earth and I go where he sends me and I do what he wants me to do. I'm a special chosen polished arrow but he hides me away, it's what it says in the text, for a special purpose. When something really needs to be done, he pulls this chosen arrow out. That's what it's saying here. The will of the son or the will of the servant is to do what the father wants. Where does he shoot me? That's the intent here. Verse three expresses God's opinion of him. You are my servant and I am glorified through you. In other words, you do things that are in keeping with my nature. They bring me glory. And then we get to verse four. Now everything's doing fine. And we get to verse four. Where this servant says, I feel like I have failed. That's pretty much what he says. 
I have labored in vain. It appears that I have labored in vain. It appears as though I have spent my life, my strength for nothing. Now this is, this is the same servant that in Isaiah 9 was the coming king, where it was no-brainer victory. It was bright days, bright bronze, gold, silver, triumph, trumpets. This, this, that king is now this servant who is expressing the disposition of, I feel like I have expended my life in vain. Now, I want to save you uh, real quick, just from any kind of emergency, like messianic emergency. Uh, he didn't, fin- I didn't finish the verse. Yet surely my right is with the Lord. So he ultimately is saying, that feeling I have is a sensation. It's an apparent sensation. It's not true. Okay? But I want to kind of unpack it for a second. I want to belabor it. The idea that the, the servant, the servant of God would express, the, I, I, your arrow, have gone where you sent me, have done what you wanted me to do faithfully, and yet I feel like it has had no effect. Is that consistent with the story of Christ? I think it is. Just the apparent failure. He goes into Nazareth, preaches in Nazareth. They say, who is this guy? Isn't this the son of Mary? Jesus marvels at their unbelief. Remember that, Mark? He marveled at their unbelief. He goes to Jerusalem, and he weeps over the city because he knows that the city will not see him for who he is. His disciples, one betrays him, one denies him. Pretty much most of the rest of them flee him in his time of need. The sign over his head and the cross mocks him. Here is lies king of the Jews. The crown on his head taunts him. Failure. He is a fake king, is what all that says. The thief next to him taunts him. If you are who you say you are, get us down from here. Your failure. This is uh, pretty much the disposition of the world towards Christ. Isaac Christ was not effectual in his ministry. This, the nicest possible way that people can say this is he was a good teacher. Okay? The truth is he was not a good teacher if he's not effectual because out of his mouth comes the sword. It, either his teaching has authority or it does not have authority. The world just blunts the sword of Christ. But what Jesus says here, I've got to be careful, what the servant says here, right, if you're going to play the wise men, what this servant says here is, I'm going to come and I'm going to do the will of the Father, but it will feel like I've labored in vain. It will feel like I have expended my life for nothing in vanity. Yet, surely, I look to God for judgment. That's what he's saying. He says, but I don't look to man for a, to assess my performance. I look to God to assess my performance. I don't really care. My concern is not that I don't care about what people think. My concern, the servant says, is not for the judgment of mankind, 
The judgment of mankind has no authority over me. My concern for the effectiveness of my ministry is with God and God alone. That's what he's saying here. My recompense. I go to the Lord to be compensated for my labor. God is my judge. Not man. We'll keep going. I want to, I want to, I'll, I'm going to come back to this servant in a moment, but I do want to ask, I do think this is a good opportunity to have you ask of your own life a couple of questions. One, from where do you gain your sense of efficacy? From God or from man? Because you put your weight of effort in the things that give you meaning. When you place what you've done on the scale, for I don't, first of all, I don't really care how it weighs out. I want to know whose scale are you putting it on? Man's scale or God's scale? Two different scales. I don't mean to say they're entirely opposite. They are different scales. To whom do we look? What is the burden of judgment in our life? What is spurring this weight of effort? All the things that we do when, when we muster up our energy and apply our lives, are we doing that because we know that this body of work is going to go on that scale, judged by them? Or is this body of work, are we laboring because we know it's going to go on this scale to be approved by him? Because very often, what is effective to God will appear weak to man. And what is effective to men will appear prideful to God. The servant says, it looks like I'm a failure, but I turn to him. I go to him, and the God responds, this is so good. Okay, it says five. You want to know how effective he is? God's going to tell you how effective he is. And now the Lord says, and then he trash talks about himself. He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back, that Israel might be gathered to him, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. You just see here how the servant is fixated on the Lord. I'm honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, so I feel like a failure on their plane of things. But then I look to God, and you know what God says? I'm going to tell you what God says. He says in verse 6, it's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. In other words, when God grabbed that arrow and like thrust it on the earth and it landed And the servant looked back and said, what about this? God said, it's not enough that you save Israel. It's not enough. Super effective, overwhelmingly effective, aboundingly effective, more effective than one could possibly imagine that the work of Jesus Christ, it's too small a thing that he would save that person or that person. It's too small a thing that he would save only that tribe. It's too small a thing to put any human boundary around the breadth and width of the work of Jesus Christ. That's what he says. 
He says, your salvation is sufficient and effectual to save everyone in the world. That's what he says. What appears like a failure to us is overwhelmingly effective to the Lord. And we need to see this. Christ's labor is to God, not to men. He labors to the Lord, and the Lord dispenses grace to us. Right? There's this gap of sin between us and God that Christ comes on behalf of the Father, fired by him to come to earth and pay for that penalty so that God can then, in satisfaction, give us grace. If you were the wise man reading the scroll, coming across this servant, you'd realize the hope and comfort that I hear of in Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort says... Our God, speak tenderly to Jerusalem that the hour of her hardship is complete. That comfort, if it's going to come to me, must come through the sacrifice of the servant. I'll do one more, another song. Not one more, but another one. This is the third servant song, Isaiah 50. I want you to see it again. This this trend, right, from the glory and splendor of Isaiah 9 to the otherness of Isaiah 42. What's going on there to the clear concern in Isaiah 49 that there's going to be a expense of life that will appear to be in vain. Then we get to 50. And just listen to the mannishness of the servant in this chapter. I'll start in verse four. The Lord has given me a tongue of those who are taught that I might know how to sustain with a word him who's weary. What he's saying there, just to catch you up. The Lord has given me a tongue of the wise. Those who are taught, he's given me a wise tongue that I would know what to say to bring comfort to the weary. That's a really good way of talking about the servant. God gave him a word to bring his comfort. And then he says this. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I mean, what he's saying, the Lord God gave me a tongue, of a wise tongue to say wise things that would bring comfort to people who are weary. And the Lord awakened me and gave me a wise ear, a ear to hear him and understand him and know him. And he says, and I was obedient. I did not turn back. That's what he's saying about the servant. God has given me the ability to say what you need to hear, to bring to deliver you from the weariness of life. God has given me the ability to say it, and I've said it. And God has given me the, the ear to hear his will, and I've done it. That's what he's saying. Listen to else how else his body is described. Okay, because how did man receive him? Look at verse six. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I did not hide my face from the disgrace and the spitting. Apparently, he was a failure. But then you see how he looks to the Lord, verse seven. But the Lord God helps me. 
See how he turns? Oh, if we could only be this way. Turn to the Lord. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint. I love that verse. And I know that I shall not be put to shame. My labor is to say what God wants me to say and to be obedient to his will. And I've done that regardless of what they've said, regardless of what they've done, regardless of the shame I have incurred and the abuse I've received and the spitting and the, 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 the humility that has been cast upon me. I have spoken his word and I have done his will and I will not be put to shame. That's what he says. And the rub comes in the 10th verse. <clears throat> the song, the, the prophet turns to the hearer now. And he, wander, he wonders on our behalf. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches that you've kindled, this you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. <laughs> this is the, 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 the image is, to people walking in darkness, do you turn to God for light? That's the question. Do you turn to the servant for the light of life? Or do you light your own candle and live this life artificially lit? Do you, this would be the words of our culture, do you believe that truth is something that's personal to you and that you follow? That's your own personal torch and you light it and you're followed by your own moral compass wherever you think you need to go and the Lord says, you know where that's gonna lead you? You will lie down in torment. There is only darkness but for the life of, light of Christ. That's what he's saying. The only light to be found is the light of the servant who spoke the words I told him to speak and did my will entirely. That's it. You need to decide if he was effective or not. Do you call him a failure? Or is he your God? Oh, that is such a good question. It is a great Christmas question. What do you do with the advent of Jesus? Is he the light of the world who came down out of darkness? and opened our eyes to see, and we sang it. Let's read one more song. The last servant song in, in uh, the book. If you turn to Isaiah 53. And this by now, you're, on, you're at the Battle of Agincourt. You are in the granular reality of what Christ has had to do for us in order for him to sit on the throne in splendor. I mean, what was, been, what was ceremonialized in the ninth chapter is now described in gory detail in the 53rd chapter. Fifty-three, verse one, who has believed what he has heard from us. And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Just listen to how man-ish this is. For he grew up before him like a young plant 
like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. He was apparently a failure. But here's what he did for us. This is what he did for you. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, apparently to the world, he is a failure. And yet in reality, he is our only hope. There is no name but Jesus Christ from whence we will be saved. What did we do to him, seven to nine? He was oppressed and he was afflicted and yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions, of my people. By whose light do you walk? Upon whose scale do you weigh yourself? Where do you put your weight of effort? Who is your God? These are rightful Christmas questions. It would be wrong at Christmas not to ask this question. Why celebrate the advent of a failure? Let's pray. Lord, (laughs) you were not a failure. But your work exceeded, super exceeded, so as to offer salvation to me and others who lived afar from Hebrews, afar from Israel. It was too light a thing, Lord, based upon the work of Christ, too light a thing for you to stop with them. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that we have hope in you, that we have the light of life in you. We thank you that we do not have to be successful by the measure of this world to bring you pleasure. We simply have to seek to do the will that we've heard from you and to follow the servant, to observe what the servant has done for us, that his victory on the throne, seated now in the heavens, the wounded yet living lamb, who's worthy to open the seals and bring an end to all time. This lamb died for our sins. We say that to you, Lord. How can we not worship? How can we say that and not worship? 
We pray, Father, that during this Advent season, as we observe Christmas, that we would find joy in the humble way your son came and was willing to suffer on our behalf. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.